You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Man, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 1. How many of you were uh, taught the value of hard work when you were growing up? So the rest of you, your parents sat you down and said, here's how you be lazy, right? Okay. Um, I, m- most of us are taught that uh, on some level or another to embrace a strong work ethic. And it's not lost on me that uh, this is Labor Day weekend. Uh, and we are starting a sermon series looking at the book of Galatians uh, that stresses the importance of us not working for our salvation uh, in any form. Uh, but that it is a gift from God. Uh, you know, part of the, uh, the teaching on a strong work ethic is uh, ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? Um, well, that, that does not apply when it comes to salvation, because salvation is free. Uh, it has been fully and completely uh, provided for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that is what we're going to be looking at here in the book of Galatians. Now, as we open a, uh, a new series... Uh, a letter from the Apostle Paul to actually a, uh, a group of churches in uh, a region called Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, I think it's important for us to kind of do some background work, and uh, that's readily available. Most of you have a study Bible uh, at home, and most study Bibles contain some notes and some background information on the different books of the Bible. Uh, a couple of people were uh, really helpful this week and sent me this basic uh, outline of the, uh, the Pauline letters. Uh, it was, Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of everything holy, stop being stupid. Timothy says hi. <laughs> and uh, I think that's, uh, that's actually a pretty good outline. Um, but uh, that's, uh, we actually have a little bit more than that here in Uh, the book of Galatians. Um, You know, we are living in a day um, where it is uh, becoming more and more common to hear of businesses, uh, companies, struggling to find a reliable workforce. Uh, People who actually want to work. That's kind of odd because as it relates to spirituality many times, it's like we crave approval and we think somehow, some way, we can earn God's approval. That was part of the problem. One of the main issues in Paul's day is he addressed these churches in Galatia. And so we're going to be walking through uh, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to this real group of people who lived in Galatia. The letter beautifully describes the abundant grace and the freedom that Jesus still offers us today. Now you can look at a letter like this, an ancient document written some 2,000 years ago, and you go, how in the world does this apply to us? Because, like, I, I, you know, the, the issue here, as we're going to see this morning, is, is legalism. Uh, we're going to talk about the Judaizers just a little bit. What they were essentially saying is, yeah, Jesus, but you also need to become a Jew. Uh, and most of us would be like, well, I'm not thinking about that. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not thinking, well, to please God, I need to go back and obey the Old Testament ceremonial law and the dietary laws and... Certainly, you know, circumcision, and I, I mean, those aren't things that I'm struggling with today, but when you think about it, we have our own little set of rules and regulations, much like the Judaizers and the Pharisees of Jesus' day had. We would attach those things, whether deliberately or not, to our salvation and our approval 
with God. And so as it relates to us here in uh, the year 2022, uh, on wearisome days, it's a text like this that reminds us that Jesus is our rest. Uh, On days when we feel the pressure to earn our standing in the world and earn our standing with God, it reminds us that Jesus has already secured our standing and our identity. In Christ, I hope that is very much a part of your identity. I mean, we we use a lot of different terms to identify ourselves as it relates to our faith and our spirituality and those kinds of things. We will say, well, I'm I'm this denomination, or I'm that denomination, I'm Baptist, I'm I'm not I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I'm I'm into Jesus, but I'm not into the organized church. And there's a lot of different ways that people describe themselves. And I have conversations with people all the time, and there's a lot of confusion about that. My hope and prayer this morning is that for whatever way you may describe yourself, I hope and pray that you can say, I am in. Christ. I'm in Christ, meaning I have placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As it relates to the book of Galatians, the uh, well-known reformer Martin Luther, he loved the book of Galatians so deeply uh, that he compared his passion for the book to the passion that he had for his own wife, Catherine. Uh, he wrote this, he said, the epistle to the Catherine, uh, to the, the epistle to the Catherines, that's good. Um, The epistle to the Galatians uh, is my epistle. Uh, To it, I am, as it were, in wedlock. It is my Catherine. That's how much he loved the book of Galatians. Now, the author's name, obviously, is Paul. Uh, He begins that way in a typical uh, salutation in Greco-Roman writing and so forth. He says, uh, this is uh, from, from the apostle Paul. He lists himself here as an apostle or a sent one. Uh, And then we find that the autobiographical information that he gives us here is consistent with what we know about the Apostle Paul. In fact, he's going to go into his testimony a little bit as we move through the book of Galatians. Uh, But all of that is consistent with what we know about Paul from Acts and from uh, his other letters. Theologically, everything that we find in the book of Galatians is consistent with Paul's views elsewhere, particularly in the book of Romans. Now, Galatians, while there's a little bit of debate on this... Uh, is most likely Paul's earliest letters. Now, if you look at your English Bible, you're like, well, in my Bible, it's like the fourth one because you've got Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians. Well, actually, they're laid out in our English Bibles in an order of length, primarily. Uh, and so that's why it would, you would do well to do a chronological reading of Scripture sometime. If you've never done that, I think it will help you uh, better understand how different sections of Scripture fit in the meta-narrative, the big picture uh, of Scripture, especially when you're reading some of the, the uh, Old Testament uh, historical narrative, uh, and you read the Psalms along with that, if you do it in a true chronological fashion, you will find, you'll be like, oh, that's why the psalmist wrote that. Oh, okay, yeah, because you're going back and you're looking at things going on in David's life at the time and, and things like that. So it's a great idea to, uh, I believe, read the Bible chronologically. But what he does here is he gives us this strong presentation of the truth that sinners are justified and live godly lives by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And understand this, this is uh, arguably Paul's most passionate writing. Uh, We would say in today's terminology, he is fired up. And we get fired up about a lot of things, right? 
Uh, we, we get fired up about all kinds of stuff, you know, what's coming next, this phase of life, that phase of life. We get fired up. Sometimes we get fired up because we're mad about something. Someone cut me off in traffic, and, and you just, the veins are popping out in your neck. You know, we get super passionate. Well, Paul's really passionate about the gospel. And would to God that we would be passionate and, and, and fired up about the right kind of thing. So Galatians was written to clarify and defend the truth of the gospel. Now, we see that terminology used in chapter 2, verse 5, and in verse number 16, in the face of a false gospel. Uh, this was done in, in a number of different ways, and I just want to highlight three of those real quickly. He does it by defending uh, not only his message, but his authority as an apostle. Uh, now, Paul's ap uh, his apostolic authority was questioned a number of different times. He writes in 1 Corinthians uh, and he addresses the issue of people questioning his apostolic uh, authority. Number two, he looks at uh, the, considering the Old Testament basis of the gospel message. So if you think that the gospel is only a New Testament concept, then you don't have a clear understanding of Scripture itself. Because we have in Genesis, as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what's called the Proto-Evangelium. That is the first mention of the gospel. And so God's word from Genesis to Revelation is gospel-saturated. It's gospel-saturated, and, and we're going to see some of that as we look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. And then he also does so by demonstrating how the gospel message that Paul preached is to be worked out practically in daily Christian living. We, we try to remind ourselves of this regularly, but the gospel is not just something that we need at the moment of salvation. Okay, when maybe as a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, you made a profession of faith at the vacation Bible school or, or whatever. No, no, the gospel is something that we need every day. In fact, once in a while, you'll find some decent theology on Facebook. I saw a, a meme the other day that said, um, do, do we still need the gospel today? And it said, man, I need the gospel just to go to Walmart, right? <laughs> I need the gospel to, to just, you know, to live in, in harmony with my spouse and with my kids and with my coworkers and to, you know, to make it to my job site in Dallas through the traffic. And I need the gospel every day. So we've got to continually be proclaiming the gospel to ourselves. And hopefully you will see that uh, become more clear as we unpack Paul's letter here to the Galatians. And so this, this kind of forceful letter addresses uh, this legalism and the false gospel of works. More specifically, Judaizers. Judaizers. These were people who would say, yes, Jesus, plus this. Yes, Jesus, plus you've got to keep the, the, the Old Testament law of Moses. His letter was written to uh, counter false teachers who were saying that a person must keep the Jewish law to be righteous before God. And again, you may be saying this morning, Pastor, I, that's, that's, that's not me, man. Like, I'm not dealing with that. Like, there's some stuff about the Old Testament law. I read that. I'm like, what in the world? Like, you can't mix certain fabrics and can't eat a cheeseburger because you can't mix meat with dairy. And I, like, I, I'm, that's not me. But, but I have a pretty good idea that there may be some things in your life that you are looking to in hopes that if I do these things well enough and I cross these certain T's and I dot these certain I's, then I'm going to be in good standing with God. That is a form of modern-day legalism. It's a form of modern-day Phariseeism. And so hopefully we'll clear up what uh, legalism really is and how it impacts us today. Now, I'm going to be clear about something at the outset. This letter is about the right interpretation of the Old Testament, including the Mosaic Law, and not 
about a rejection of the Old Testament as Christian scripture. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not rejecting the Old Testament. Uh, and so I, one way that helps me um, is to kind of understand the Old Testament, particularly uh, the Old Testament law, uh, as a sort of diagnostic spotlight, you might say, or an MRI. Okay, I'm not a doctor, but I know uh, that physicians will often order an MRI, and they use that as a diagnostic tool. It's technically not a treatment. Okay, if you have a certain ailment, they don't say, well, what you need is an MRI. No, you need an MRI to be able to tell them what kind of treatment you actually need, what may be going on inside of you. Well, that's kind of what the Old Testament law is. In fact, it's, it's referred to in Scripture as a schoolmaster that brings us to grace. So it puts a spotlight on our sinfulness. <laughs> Can you really do this? Can you really keep the law? Can you really uh, obey in every, in every sense uh, the, the law? And, and, and what it tells us is, no, I can't. I can't. I think that's one of the reasons that sometimes we struggle with this very fundamental truth as it relates to the gospel, because we are, by nature, wired to crave approval. And we're seeing that more and more today. It's highlighted all the time through social media particularly. What are people looking for? They're looking for more likes. They're looking for more interaction. They're looking for, in a sense, they're looking for approval. And so we naturally are wired to say, I've got to do something to earn God's approval. I've got to be good enough. I've got to do enough good things to earn God's approval. Well, I hate to burst your spiritual bubble this morning, but the truth is this. You can't be good enough. You can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. Because what Scripture demands and requires is perfection. And most of us would readily admit, oh, I am far from perfect. Bingo. The MRI of the gospel, so to speak, tells you that. And so that's why this message, this letter, is so critically important to our understanding of this very fundamental truth. We would say this is Christianity 101. This is a first-tier issue. Uh, this is not some kind of thing where well, you, you get this wrong and that's ah, okay. You know, there's a lot of second, third-tier issues, other things out there upon which we might disagree. This is one of those things in our membership process we explain. This, this is something that's not negotiable for us. That salvation only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no buffet of options available to us whereby we may achieve or understand or be justified before a holy God. There just isn't. Now, I can remember a lot of years ago when buffets were more common, we would go to Luby's almost every Sunday after church. And now I like that because I could go through there and I could pick and choose what I wanted. I don't want that. I don't want that. I want that. I want that. I want more of that. I, you know. This is not one of those things. Like This is just one of the options on God's buffet. Uh, and so with that in mind, I want us to look at the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 1 this morning. I hope that you'll follow along as I read. Again, Paul, an apostle, notice he says, I'm not called from men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia. And I love this, this salutation, this greeting. It's common with the Apostle Paul. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now don't miss the significance of that sentence, of that third verse. 
As Jace pointed out earlier, even the terminology, the Lord Jesus Christ, is very, very important here. And I love the way that he uses the words grace and peace. Those are great words, aren't they? But you've got to realize that they're linked together. Because you cannot fully know and understand the peace of God until you fully understand the grace of God. We say it this way. You can't possibly be at peace with God until you, you can't understand the peace of God until you are at peace with God. Because the Bible says until you have turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you're actually at enmity with God is the word that's used. In other words, you're at odds with God. That's why we say the Bible is fundamentally a book about people who have a problem with God. And the problem is sin. And so until that sin problem is taken care of, then you cannot be reconciled to God. The problem is a lot of people are thinking, I've got to take care of the problem. I've got to be the one to take care of that. I've got to clean my act up. I've got to do enough good stuff. So that greeting is critically important. And he goes on to explain, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse number 6 begins kind of a new section. Most of our Bibles are marked in some way or another that says, no other gospel. I am astonished. He cuts to the chase. In fact, this is one of, one of his only letters where Paul does not offer some kind of uh, sentence of thanksgiving for uh, his listeners, to, for his hearer. Uh, he just he goes right to it. I mean, he's passionate. He goes, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he kind of says, parenthetically, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you, the Judaizers, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Anathema. That's strong language, isn't it? It's so important that he repeats it in verse number 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. When something's really important in Scripture, it's often repeated. It's often repeated for emphasis. Verse 10, for, I am now, uh, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The first thing I want us to notice from our text today is the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel. What God has done for us. The word gospel is its really a pretty simple word. It means good news. That's why we use the terminology, the good news of the gospel. When you share the gospel with someone, you are sharing good news with them. It's the greatest news ever known to man. The essence of the gospel is what God has done for us. Now, Paul uses a series of clauses here focusing on Christ's work of rescuing sinners from sin and death. Notice the phrase, for our sins. For our sins. That is foreshadowing Paul's more detailed explanation of the substitutionary nature of Christ's death in chapter 3, verse 13, where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For us. Then you notice there's a reflexive phrase there. Uh, where he says, gave himself. 
gave himself. That shows that Christ willingly reconciled sinful human beings to holy God. Reconciled believers to God. So we have some very important theology already. I mean, right out of the gate, we have substitutionary atonement. We have reconciliation. Those are powerful words in Scripture. Powerful words in Scripture. The atonement was not some maniacal, powerful father inflicting punishment on an unwilling child. No, it was of Christ who is equal with God the Father, willingly participating in the Father's sovereign plan to rescue us, to redeem us. So the essence of the gospel then is that through Christ's atoning death, God rescues his people from the sin and evil that dominate what Paul describes here as the present age. The present age. You see, Paul generally divided a time or history into two ages, the present age and the age to come. And so just like our day, or I guess we could say our day, just like in Paul's day, we find chaos. We see it every day. Every time you turn on the news, you see another indication of a chaotic world, a broken, sinful world. We see chaos. We see suffering. We see oppression. Those things characterize the present age. The present age because it is in rebellion against its creator. But in his mercy, however, God will usher in the age to come. The time of the new creation that Paul will mention later in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. So Paul is painting a picture here that the atoning death of Jesus Christ was the point at which the present age began to pass away and the age to come began to dawn. Does that make sense? It's one of those tensions that we find in scripture of the already but not yet. So we would say it this way, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you at that moment are justified. You are made just as if you've never sinned. And you will never be more saved than you are at that moment. But that sets in motion something that we call sanctification, whereby we are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're being transformed, being made new. Okay, he's, he's, he's molding us and shaping us. That's why it's important that we gather as we have this morning. That's why it's important that we are digging into God's word and, and growing in our relationship with him. So it's a very, very important truth to understand. And so we see this, this very important kind of time in history, of course, when Christ died for the sins of the world. He died in our place. The gospel, the essence of the gospel is what God has done for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what does that cause Paul to do? <laughs> he then breaks into this brief doxology. It's so great. He says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that. You ever get such great news that you just can't help but like break out into song? I mean, it's just like, this is awesome. That's what Paul does. You see, our theology should always lead to doxology. Our theology should always lead to doxology. We say it this way. We can't worship and, and fully understand our worship of God if we don't know who God is. And so don't ever let anybody tell you that like doctrine isn't important. That biblical teaching isn't important. 
That, that, that forms the basis of our understanding of who God is. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What we know and understand about God. But what that does is that, that, that theology, our understanding of Scripture, should then lead to doxology. The problem many times is the more we know, the more we kind of get filled up with knowledge... And then what happens is we don't put that into practice like we should, and so we're not actually living out the truth of the gospel. It should turn into doxology, as we see the Apostle Paul here in Galatians chapter 1. So the essence of the gospel, what God has done for us. Number two, I want you to notice the threat to the gospel. And that's summed up this way, what we can do for God. What we can do for God. So if you have a clear understanding of who God is, of his, of his nature, you begin to understand, you, we, you will know and understand that God is self-sufficient. God never has any need of anything. There's never been a time when God needed something. I know some of us feel like, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure God's, God, I'm on, you know, God's glad I'm on his team. I, God doesn't need us in that way. Okay, God is, is self-sufficient. He's all-sufficient. Okay, so there's nothing that we can do to add to uh, his redemptive work. Okay, so it's not Jesus plus me. Jesus plus Mike's best efforts. Jesus plus Mike crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. No, it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. That's the essence of the gospel. The threat of the gospel is this, uh, this feeling, this idea that I've got to do something for God. I've got to partner with God in my salvation. So notice verse 6. Paul starts out this next section with some pretty strong language. He says, I am astonished. I'm astonished. If, if we were to say it in today's vernacular, we would say, I'm blown away. I am blown away. I am shocked. I'm disappointed. Why? Because you are deserting. You are deserting the true gospel. The present tense of the verb there shows that the Galatians have not completed their apostasy. They are well on their way, which is why Paul's letter expresses such emotion, such passion. It's why he's so fired up and why, why it comes with a sense of alarm. So Paul gives the, the first hint of exactly what their error entails with his claim that they are deserting the initiative that God took. God called you. God called you. Don't mistakenly think that we are the ones who initiated salvation. I know we sometimes say, well, I found God. Theologically, that's not accurate. You don't, you don't find God. God. God found you. He's the one who initiates a salvation. He called you when Christ reconciled them to God as free, undeserved. It's a gift. It's the grace of of Christ. It's all of grace. Uh, verse number seven uses the word distort. Greek speakers often would use the term uh, that's translated in the ESV here as distort for a dramatic change from something positive into its negative opposite. So it'd be like saying good to evil, uh, drinkable water into blood, <laughs> light into darkness. The joy of a wedding into the morning of a funeral. That's the idea. So Paul is using a really a strong word here 
to refer to a twisting or a perverting of the gospel into something that has a superficial resemblance to it, but in its substance, it is as different as night and day. Several years ago, I preached a series of messages about the Pharisees of Scripture, and I entitled that series of messages, Adventures in Missing the Point. Adventures in Missing the Point. Because remember, the Pharisees were the ones who were best known uh, for having this like prideful approach to God. Like, remember, they're the ones who would say, God, I thank you that I'm not like that man over there. God, I thank you that, you know, and they would dress in a particular way. They would do certain things. They, would, they were always the ones who were like throwing the flag on Jesus and his disciples because they did something wrong or they didn't wash their hands just right or they, this and that. They were the ones who were, you know, like the, uh, the police of the day, so to speak. So Paul is using this this idea of perverting the gospel by adding this stuff. Really what they were doing is polluting the gospel. That's why he uses this different gospel. This different gospel, as if there were such a thing, is a distortion or a pollution of the real gospel of Christ. Because the good news of God's initiative in reconciling people to himself revolves around what Christ has done for sinners in his substitutionary death. That's why it comes down to this. It is what God has done for us versus what we think we can do for God. That's the line that Paul is really drawing in the sand here. So what he's saying is, the good news, the good news of of the real gospel, the real deal, you are turning into bad news. Because you're saying it's Jesus plus something else. Now, what were these Judaizers actually saying? They were saying, trust Jesus, sure. Okay, but... To these Gentiles who were becoming followers of Jesus, they were coming along and they were saying, you also, in addition to Jesus, must keep the dietary laws. In other words, you can only eat certain foods. And you can only eat with people who eat certain foods. And it just kind of went on and on and on. All kinds of of things added to even uh, the actual dietary laws of of the Old Testament. You've got to work according to your own rules. Observe the religious practices. you got to get circumcised. And so Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 21, if we look ahead just a bit, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died for no purpose. So I think it would be a good idea for us to define legalism. That word gets used fairly often within church life. And a lot of times we use it in the sense of, well, if somebody holds to maybe a little stricter view on something than I do, then they're a legalist. Even though it's a very secondary issue or a third-tier issue or something. I grew up in a tribe that that was kind of prone toward this. There was a lot of, you know, outward things and certain little things here. And, you know, we've got these certain, and certainly scripture is clear that we're to be unique, distinctly different from the world. But what happens is you can add a lot of stuff to that. And if people don't do things exactly the way you do, then you can, you know, label them. That's really not what legalism is. Legalism defined as this, it is working in our own power, working according to our own rules, working to earn God's favor. That is fundamentally a very simple definition of legalism. Working in our own power, according to our own rules, to earn God's favor. Now, when you think about that definition, 
Maybe you set aside some of the, uh, the, the technical definition of the Old Testament law and ask yourselves, are there any things that I'm doing today or feel like I have to do in order to earn God's favor? Like church attendance? It's a good thing. I, I would say it's very, very important to us. I believe that God has he's designed the, the local church gathered is God's plan A. There's no plan B, as we say. Bible reading, quiet time, devotions. There, there are a number of different things that in our modern-day cultural context we, we, we can kind of put into this category. Again, those are all good things. And hopefully we're going to help you connect the dots here in just a moment because here's the thing. When you when you are holding to a form of legalism, even though maybe it doesn't look or seem as extreme to you as, as the Judaizers of Paul's day, here's what happens. Legalism leads to pride when we're doing good. When I am reading my Bible every day, and I am praying like I should, and I am attending church like I should, and I am sharing the gospel like I should, all those things, then I start feeling pretty good about myself. And human nature, the tendency is to get kind of filled up with pride. That's what happens when you give yourself to legalism. It also leads to fear when we're not doing so good. So when I've missed three or four days of Bible reading, and I'm not praying quite like I should, and, and I, that, that, that leads to a place of fear. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not in God's good graces. It's kind of like when you were a kid. If you, if you knew you had done something wrong, but you weren't yet certain if your parents knew about what you had done, you know, you was like, if they said to you, Go to your room because I need to talk to you about something. You're just like, oh, no. They know. They know. They found out. And then, and then you may find, to your shock and dismay, that that's not actually what they wanted to talk to you about. And you're like, phew. It's like you're constantly living in this state of fear when you give yourself to legalism. So it, it leads to pride when we're doing good. It leads to fear when we're not doing so good. And it always leads to comparison with others. Again, that's classical Phariseeism. We are better than you. I mean, you can just almost sense that just the arrogance just dripping off the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They, you know, would wear their robes, just all these different things that they would do, making, in their mind, making them better than everybody else. That's what legalism can do. And we can very easily look around and go, well, I'm not the greatest Christian, but I'm not like that guy. Well, I'm not the greatest, but I'm sure not like her. <laughs> And so what we tend to do, human nature, we compare ourselves with the common criminal, for example. And we can feel pretty good about ourselves. But what is the standard of righteousness? The standard is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why scripture says it is really foolish. It's unwise to compare yourselves among yourselves. It just is. That's really fundamentally a form of legalism. It's a form of legalism. So... We see legalism defined. I want you to consider here that legalism is destroyed. Legalism is destroyed. How is that? Because Paul makes it crystal clear here that the gospel is free. 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 There's nothing that you or I could do to deserve it, to earn it. My... Uh, our youngest daughter has a birthday this next week, and she's uh, sent out invitations to some of her friends to come to her birthday celebration, and I suspect some of them may bring gifts or whatever. 
Wouldn't it be weird for them to come in and say, hey, I, I need to get like 20 bucks for this if I could. Like that, that's, that's odd. Like that, that wouldn't even make sense because it would cease being a gift. But we, we think somehow, some way, we can do enough good that God will like owe us one. So not only does God not need us as it relates to salvation and, and our reconciliation to him, God's not going to owe us anything. Scripture says God will not be a debtor to any man. So again, that's where legalism is a problem because we feel like I'm doing all these things. I'm going to church every week. I'm reading my Bible like I should. I'm praying like I should. And I still lost my job. What's up with that, God? Don't you owe me something better than that? I'm doing all these things and I still got that cancer diagnosis. What's up with that? That's why the prosperity gospel is so, so dangerous. Because it's this fundamental thought or idea that God somehow owes us one. God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. So the gospel is free. It's initiated by God the Father, as Paul says here, and it is accomplished by God the Son fully and completely. That's why Jesus said from the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. The work is done. I had a job uh, early in my seminary days in Ohio. I worked for two brothers that owned a Western Auto store. And uh, I was so new on the job. I, didn't, I was just still learning how everything worked and working up front one day. And this guy came in and he said he needed to pay on his tab. I, was like, I don't even know what that means, like pay on his tab. Okay. So one of the other employees came over and they pulled this big leather book out from under the counter and plopped it up on top and opened it up. It was this old-fashioned, like, I mean, Little House on the Prairie kind of ledger book, you know. And it had these, this like a running tab for people, literally. And this guy said, I need to know what I owe. I want to pay it in full. He wanted to pay off everything that he owed to the store. And that's what he did. And so I was instructed, what you do is you write on there the check number or whatever. If he paid by cash, you give him a receipt. And you put on there, paid in full. That is, that is fundamentally exactly what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross and conquered death. He paid off our debt completely, fully. And yet we somehow mistakenly think, I'm so glad Jesus did what he did. Now I've got to kind of help him out with this. That, that's, that's legalism. That's legalism. And it's dangerous. Not only is the gospel free, but the gospel is freeing. It is freeing. It frees us from the bondage of sin, but it also frees us from the bondage of performance and comparison. That's the gospel. So every single day that you get up, every single day you wake up, you say, God, thank you for the gift of your salvation. Instead of starting your day thinking, God, I, I'm going I'm 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 to get you taken care of on this. I, I'm going to pay you back. I, I promise. I, I'm going to earn what you've, what you've given me. You, you can't. Even on your best day, even on my best day, we can't be good enough. That's the beauty of the gospel. And here's the truth as it relates to eternity. If you don't understand the gospel, you will never be free. You'll never be free. Because the essence of the gospel is freedom itself. Is freedom itself. 
That's where our Old Testament study of Exodus becomes so important. What an amazing picture of freedom from bondage. It's a picture of freedom from the bondage of sin. And so the pull in today's world to live exhausted lives in a world that applauds our constant striving and earning and achieving, it's strong. I mean, it's something that we instill into our kids. Achieve. Do your best. Be your best. Rise to the top. All those things, as important as that is, you've got to be very careful because Jesus invites us to rest. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Rest for what? For your soul. For your soul. And in Galatians, the apostle Paul points us back to the heart of of the gospel, trusting Jesus alone and not adding, polluting, distorting, twisting, even with good works, twisting God's grace. This is a gospel of grace. Don't distort the gospel. For just a few moments, we could bow our heads and We want this to be a time of reflection, a time of response to what God is saying to us today through his word and by the Holy Spirit. I never want to assume any time I have the privilege of opening God's word with a group of people that everyone in the room has a clear understanding of the gospel. In fact, you may be one of those people who would say, well, pastor, I'm, I'm searching uh, I'm trying, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm hoping through a number of different things. Maybe even your being here today is a part of that effort to find favor with God. If you're putting your hope and your trust in anything that you have done or ever could do, then you're not fully understanding the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus wants to be a part of your portfolio, your spiritual resume. The good news of the gospel is that the work's all done for you. It's the gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, never acknowledged before God that you are a sinner with a sin debt that you can't pay, so you're trusting him, the payment that he's made for you, I invite you to take that step of faith today. I'm not suggesting today that you have to, to walk down here to the front and shake my hand. <laughs> That's not the gospel. It's just the prayer of your heart and acknowledging who who God is and who you aren't and how you can't possibly save yourself. So you need a Savior. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. There may be others who would say, Pastor, my testimony is one of faith in Christ. I can point to a time in my life. I may not be able to remember the exact day or the date, but I, I know there was a point in my life where I did commit my life to Jesus Christ. And I can say today that he's my Savior but I'm struggling 
Because according to what you're saying today and according to what Paul has written to the Galatians and as it applies to us, I'm feeling like sometimes like I'm just not good enough. Well, here's the truth. You're not good enough. And you can't be good enough. So why don't you leave that place of frustration and striving and all that that brings, the frustration and the fear and the comparison and all those things. Just rest in the good news of the gospel. But the work is done. Because you have this relationship with Jesus Christ, then you strive in every way to please and honor and glorify him. Even in your, even in your sinfulness. So, Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel. Lord, I pray for that one here today, that one watching online who may be uncertain of their relationship with you. Feeling on most days like they're not fully forgiven, fully free. I've got to do more. I've got to accomplish more. I've got to be better. I've got to do better. to know and understand that the work is done. For those who place their faith and trust in you but still feeling like I've got to to maintain this thing. God set it in motion through Jesus but it's my job to to, to maintain it. I've got to keep myself saved. Lord, help us to understand and to live out the beauty of the gospel. Christ died in our place. And the work is done. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. Glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.